Welcome back to Crossing the Jordan. Thank you so much for tuning back in, and I pray that you're doing wonderful. Today on this Always More Wednesday, we're going to be covering a topic from our last uh, main series episode. So our, our last main series episode, episode 18 of series 18 on the topic of salvation, we talked about that there's no salvation outside the Catholic Church and what it actually means. In that episode, we talked about um, why there's no salvation outside the church, because there's no salvation outside of Jesus, and in the in the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, according to scripture. And we discuss how God has bound himself to the sacraments, but is not bound by the sacraments. And we also discuss how those outside the membership of the church may be saved, an imperfect union with Jesus in the church, and uh, the anointing we see in other non-Catholic circles. We also talked about being a formal member does not necessarily mean that you are saved. You can be sacramentalized and go to hell. Jesus founded one church, and if there's and it's uh, there that we are united and united in the truth. Jesus has not put us in a place where we have to forsake uh, truth to obtain unity, or we have to forsake unity to obtain truth. He did not give us that option, and he promised that the gates of hell will never prevail against it. So. God objectively wants every single person to be Catholic. Um, and this episode, I wanted to talk about what uh, a word that is used throughout um, councils of the Catholic faith um, and this word anathema and what that actually means, because people think that this means that it's condemning people to hell, and it's not. Um, but before we, and I'm going to basically just read a article from Jimmy Akin, he's a Catholic convert talking about how what the word anathema means and how it's used in the context of history and in the context of church councils in the past. Um, but before I do that, uh, also on this, uh, just a resummarization of the last episode on the topic of there's no salvation outside the Catholic faith, there's a great image um, that is alluded to in Scripture but when St. Paul talks about the body the body of Christ and every single member of its body, and the hand can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. Um, that was So it's all from Scripture, and it was um, primarily developed by St. Uh, Robert Barlermine, um, and he talks about how the body has a body and soul composite. So Jesus founded a visible a visible church, even though it has, just like he's human and divine, the church is also human and divine, um, but also that humanity has a visible and an invisible dimension to it. So he, you know, Jesus founded a church and he says that, uh, that let your light shine before men and it's just a city sat on a hill that can't be hidden. And so it's a visible church that people can, that people are a part of. And not only that, but the the leaders of that church have the power to bind and loose. And so you're in, you're brought into the community or brought out of the community. Faith and morals are you're bound to or bound from. So has the power to have this visible unity to it. And that's the physical part of the, of the body. But there's also an invisible part of the body. And where St. Bellarmine says that there's people who are part of the visible body, but they're dead. <laughs> they're dead parts of the body. Um, so they're visibly united to it, but not in the invisible spiritual sense of sense of that. So they're not a part of the soul. Um, and those are the people who, you know, have been sacramentalized, but they're not actually living their faith. And that may be even doing things, uh, you know, in contradiction to their faith. Um, whereas the uh, other side of that is people who are not part of the visible church. So they're not part of the body in its fullest sense, but they are part of the body in a united way because they're united to Jesus's grace, whether that's just through their conscience um, of their own and they're part of a holy, uh, totally different religion or 
through no fault of their own, they're part of any other religion. <laughs> um, and they're following their conscience, which is the vicar of Christ. You know, Jesus, he is the word of God. It means the logic of God, the wisdom of God. And so if you're following that, then you are participating and you're following your what you know to be true and you're doing it with a sincere heart and um, you want to follow the truth, then you could be following with your formed conscience um, the grace of Jesus, the grace of the Holy Spirit. And so you could be united to the church in the soul, but it's even better to be a part of this church in the soul and in the body. And so that's what's meant, um, another, just a, a good image to to have um, what, it's, what it's meant about being a part of the church and its visible and invisible dimensions. Okay, so now let's get into today's main topic on the word anathema. So this is, I'll have the link to the article from Jimmy Aiken. The word anathema is one of the most misunderstood terms in anti-Catholic apologetics. Almost all anti-Catholics, from the lowbrow end of the spectrum to those who give themselves airs of scholarship, misunderstand it. For example, toward the more lowbrow end of anti-Catholicism, the article Apostolic or Apostate by Mike P. Gendron states, Many Christians are unaware that the Catholic councils of Trent and Vatican II issued over 100 anathemas, condemnations, in parentheses, on anyone who believes salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All these condemnations are still in effect today, end quote. Gendron has obviously never read Trent or Vatican II. Vatican II did not use the term anathema in any of its documents, and while Trent's canons do use the term, there are nowhere near 100 canons devoted to the subject of salvation, nor any canons that, properly understood, condemn the three points of soteriology Gendron, uh, Gendron names. So we find similar confusion about the term among those presenting themselves as intellectuals. In his book, The Roman Catholic Controversy, James R. White, in summarizing Trent's canons on the Eucharist, states that, according to the council, anyone who denies the truthfulness of any of these proclamations is under the anathema of God. When I read White's statement to a knowledgeable friend, he busted out laughing. After he quieted down, he suggested that perhaps the statement was calculated to deceive those who didn't know how the term anathema is used, since it is absurd to those who do know. I said, in keeping with charity, we shouldn't infer that this is a case of deliberate deception, but only that it exposes White's ignorance and his determination to criticize without proper research. However that may be, the widespread presence among anti-Catholics of chucklers like those committed by Gendron and White suggests that some time spent on the meaning of the and use of anathema is warranted. Though the term is Greek, it reflects a concept that is found in the Old Testament. The, the Hebrew equivalent is, of anathema is kerem, which refers to a thing devoted to the Lord, a thing solemnly offered to God in a manner frequently involving its complete destruction. Kedem is often rendered in English by the terms devoted thing, or dedicated thing, or thing placed under the ban. The Old Testament applies Kedem to physical objects in Deuteronomy, livestock in 1 Samuel, individual people in 1 Kings, groups of people in Isaiah, entire towns in Joshua, and lands or pieces of land in Leviticus, Zechariah, and Malachi. So things to be placed under the ban by men were either destroyed, such as we see in Leviticus 27, or given to the priests, as we see in Numbers and Ezekiel. A land under the ban was a land that had been cursed like Zechariah and Malachi. Paradoxically, something could be kerem either because it was holy or because it was unholy. So the Greek term anathema shares something of this paradox. 
It is derived from the roots ana, which means on, upon, among, or between, and tithemi, to place, put, or set. Etymologically, the word suggests something placed among the holy things, such as in the temple, a sense preserved in the variant term anathema, as we see in Luke 21.5. So the word common anathema has the sense of a curse and is applied in the New Testament to a curse by which individuals bind themselves, such as we see in Luke's in Acts 23.14, or to individuals who reject the true gospel, such as we see in St. Paul in Galatians 1, 8-9, uh, or those who do not love Christ, as we see St. Paul again in 1 Corinthians 16.22, or who are otherwise separated from Christ, in Romans, such as in Romans 9.6. It is applied by blasphemous false prophets to Jesus himself in 1 Corinthians 12.3. Of special interest are Paul's ecclesial use of anathema in Galatians 1.8-9 and 1 Corinthians 16.22, in which Paul says that if a person is guilty of certain faults, then let him be anathema. Minimally, this directed the Christian community to hold the offender in a certain regard. This involved his exclusion from fellowship, as clearly must be done in the case of a person preaching false gospel. Such exclusion for a variety of offenses is attested to elsewhere in the New Testament, such as uh, when Jesus gives the entire apostles Matthew 18 the, the power of binding to loose, and is often spoken of as handing the offender over to Satan so that he might suffer without the church's protection and thus be driven to repentance, as we see in 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2, 5-11, and in Titus 3.10. So later in church history, this exclusion to provoke repentance received the name excommunication, Originally, the church did not differentiate between excommunication and anathema, which is why ecumenical councils have traditionally constructed their dogmatic canons using the formula, if anyone says, dot, 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 let him be anathema, meaning that anyone teaching the condemned proposition is to be anathematized or cut off from Christian society. Among ecumenical councils, this usage began with the first first, uh, Nicaea in 325, which applied the formula to those denying the divinity of Christ. Since then, the formula has been used by all ecumenical councils that have been issued dogmatic that have issued dogmatic canons. Since Vatican II did not issue any dogmatic canons and never used the term anathema. Over time, a distinction came to be made between excommunication and anathema. The precise nature of the distinction varied, but eventually became fixed. By the time of Gregory the Ninth in 1370 through 1378. The term anathema was used to describe a major excommunication that was performed with a solemn pontifical ceremony. This customarily involved the ringing of a bell, the closing of a book, and the snuffing out of candles, collectively signifying that the highest ecclesial court had spoken and would not reconsider the matter until the individual gave evidence of repentance. Such solemnities have been rare in church history. They remained on the books, however, as late as the 1917 Code of Canon Law, which provided that, quote, Excommunication is called anathema, especially when it is imposed with the solemnities that are described in the Roman pontifical, end quote. Yet the penalty was used so seldom that it was removed from the 1983 Code of Canon Law. This means that today the penalty of anathema does not exist in church law. The new code provided that when this code goes into effect, the following are abrogated. One, the Code of Canon Law promulgated in 1917. Three, any reversal, or particular penal laws whatsoever issued by the Apostolic See unless they are contained in this code. So the penalty of anathema was not renewed in the new code, and thus it was abrogated when the code went into effect on January 1st, 1983. 
With this as background, the absurdity of the things said by anti-Catholics about the anathemas pronounced by Trent and other councils is plain. A number of errors are, are nearly ubiquitous in anti-Catholic writings. Number one, an anathema sent, sentence a person to hell. This is actually not true. This is not the case. Sentencing someone to hell is a power that is God's alone, and the church cannot exercise it. Number two, an anathema was a sure sign that a person would go to hell. Again, also not true. Anathemas were only warranted by very grave sins, but there was no reason why the offender could not repent, um, and those who repent aren't damned. Number three, an anathema was a sure sign that a person was not in a state of grace. This is not true for two reasons. Number one, the person may have repented since the time the anathema was issued. And number two, the person may not be in a state of mortal sin at the time the anathema was issued. Anathemas, like penalties imposed under civil law, rest on the judgment of the court, which must take, make its decision based on the evidence presented. It cannot directly examine the conscience of the individual in question. Thus, while anathemas were imposed on act on, on account of gravely sinful behavior, this was not a guarantee that it was sin, mortally sinful. For a grave sin to become mortal, it must be performed with the requisite knowledge and consent. And while an offender might have given every appearance of those conditions, they might not be there in reality, for an example, through a hidden cognitive or volitional impediment. And number four, anathemas were meant to harm the offender. No. Anathemas were simply a major excommunication performed with a special papal ceremony, and like all excommunications, their intent was medicinal, not punitive. The goal was to protect the Christian community from the spread of evil doctrines or behaviors and to prompt the individual to recognize the nature of his actions. While being deprived of the fellowship of the church is not pleasant, this does not change the fact that the fundamental orientation of excommunications and anathemas is, a dis- is medicinal, not punitive. Number five, anathemas took effect automatically. While the church does have penalties that take effect automatically, the penalty of anathema was not one of them. This should be obvious from the fact that a special pontifical ceremony had to be performed as part of the anathema. Obviously, the mere fact that someone utters a heresy in some part of the world does not cause the Pope to suddenly stop what he is doing and perform a special, specific ritual concerning this person. The anathemas of Trent and other councils were like most penalties of civil law, which only take effect through the judicial process. If the civil law prescribes imprisonment for a particular offense, those who commit it do not suddenly appear in jail. Likewise, when ecclesial law uh, prescribed an anathema for a particular offense, those who committed it had to wait until the judicial process was complete before the anathema took effect. Number six, anathemas applied to all Protestants. The The absurdity of this charge is obvious from the fact that anathemas did not take effect automatically. The limited number of hours in the day by itself would guarantee that only a handful of Protestants ever could have been anathematized. In practice, the penalty p- tended to be applied only to notorious Catholic offenders who made a pretense of staying within the Catholic community. Number seven, anathemas are still in place today. This is the single most common falsehood one encounters regarding anathemas in the writings of anti-Catholics. They aren't in place today. The penalty was employed so infrequently over the course of history that it is doubtful that anyone under an anathema was alive when the new code of canon law came out in 1983, when even the penalty itself was abolished. Number eight, the church cannot retract its anathemas. Anti-Catholics love to repeat this falsehood for rhetorical flourish, but again, it isn't true. The church is free to abolish any any penalty of ecclesial law it wants to, and it did and it did abolish this one. Because the penalty has been abolished, a word should be 
said about the status of the conciliar canons that employed this penalty. In addition to prescribing the imposition of a judicial penalty, the phrase anathema, seat, which means let him be anathema, also came to be one of the phrases that the church traditionally has used to issue doctrinal definitions. Catholic scholars have been long recognized that when an ecumenical council applies this phrase to a doctrinal matter, then the matter is settled infallibly. In parentheses, if a council applied the phrase to a disciplinary matter, then the matter would not be settled infallibly, since only matters of doctrine, not discipline, are subject to doctrinal definition. End parenthetic. Thus, when Trent and other ecumenical councils employed anathema seat in regard to doctrinal matters, not only was a judicial penalty prescribed, but a doctrinal definition was also made. Today, the judicial penalty may be gone, but the doctrinal definition remains. Everything that was infallibly decided by these councils is still infallibly settled. This has consequences under current canon law. Those things that are both divinely revealed by God and proposed as such by the church cannot be abdurately denied or doubted without the offense of heresy. Heresy does carry a penalty of automatic excommunication. Though this does not apply to those who have been members of the Catholic Church, and even then there is a significant list of exceptions. So, unfortunately, there is little likelihood that passionate anti-Catholics such as Gendron, White, and numerous others will get the facts right, openly admit their error, and actively work to counteract the damage they have done by spreading so much misinformation on the subject. But one day, it will be get it will get straightened out by God. And so that brings us to the end of our article. And so that was hopefully that's extremely helpful to understand the definition of anathema, which was to have a formal excommunication ceremony. And those were particularly for the people that were in the church, not those people outside of it. Um, and uh, it very rarely happens. And there's still uh, there's still teachings about how this person could still be in a state of grace, even under the issuance of an anathema in the history of the church, because we don't know their conscience um, because it belongs to God. And lastly is uh, the biggest takeaway is that it's not in um, church teaching anymore and it has been abolished. Even though all those things that were anathematized, they were taught uh, infallibly. So the Eucharist is taught infallibly. The, the doctrine of justification taught infallibly. Um, so all of those things are still taught infallibly that, were, uh, that had the anathema um, attached to it. But the anathematized, which was to have a member of the Catholic Church excommunicated under uh, the the ecclesial judicial process, um, which was very rare, is now not in place. So hopefully this is helpful. God bless you.